It's the feel not. Episode 148. The one where we feast on a healthy diet of worms. The Feel Knots Podcast. Christian news from around the globe. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing. But the honor of kings is to search out a matter. Explore the vast reaches of God's word. Hello, all you Theobibliotechs. I'm David Gaddy. I'm Jeremiah Orr. And together we are... The Theonauts! Four times a charm. Yeah. Uh, we, uh, if, if you hear me going... <coughs> and <coughs> the whole time... Yes. Just ignore it. I'm trying to get David sick here in the uh, studio. So, uh, anyways, you got your neti pot? No, I don't. I hate those things because uh, I've done it one time and it like felt like my ears were gonna explode out of my face. So I didn't. I don't use that anymore. That's that's. I don't know how people do that. Yeah, I have serious I, I, pressure. Well, I use the uh, sinus rinse. It's not. It's not the exact same thing as the neti pot. It's the one you squirt up in your nose, yeah. right? Yeah, same thing, man. Yeah, hurts the crap out of me. <laughs> I can't do that. So no, I'm steady diet of Alka Seltzer. Yes, that's what okay. I'm doing. Well, there you go. Three days in a row now. That's all. Whiskey I and honey. Whiskey and honey. Yeah. Yeah. Or just whiskey. <laughs> Straight up. No chaser. So. <clears throat> Anyways, how you doing, Dave? I am making it. I'm, making it. Yeah, I'm. I'm still. I've got a little bit of that, but not. Not a lot, like uh, just enough to make my throat. Rah. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Well, I hopefully, could probably, I could probably sing bass about now. <clears throat> you were doing pretty good at that on Sunday. Was I singing bass? <laughs> Either you or somebody else out in that audience was doing really well. Anyways, yeah. so uh, yeah, it's it's Halloween week. It, oh, it is. Yeah, and we're and here we are in the in the. Um, studio one week behind yeah trying to get all five of these solas in and we're gonna do it and we're gonna do it today's the day it's an (laughs) all-nighter so strap on your seatbelt hold on to your adenoids yeah the few knots are gonna ride again so if we can record two episodes in a row you could listen surely you can listen to two episodes in a row just be like meredith and listen to it on 1.5 speed yeah (laughs) yeah that's what it is put it on two times speed and it'll be fine. Put it yes. on two times speed. <laughs> and we gotta defeat the purpose. Yeah, that's the whole <laughs> the whole message there. All right, anyways. So, are you ready to jump into this amazing topic? Yeah, let's do it. So we are on the fourth sola. Um, we have yes. discussed and walked through uh, sola gratia, which is by grace alone. Yes. Sola fide by faith alone, right? By yes. grace through faith alone, right? Mm-hmm. In Christ alone. Solus sola Christus. Christus. And now we are arriving at sola scriptura by scripture alone. Yes. So. I think that the crux of this argument... Now, the five solas end up being the gospel of Jesus, right? Right. Played out. And uh, it's the most important question that they ask is, um, how does one obtain eternal life? And this is the answer. By grace through faith in Christ, according to Scripture. Scripture. And so I think that the crux lies in this sola. If it's not in this sola, then we have no promise and no proof. And so we're going to be examining why sola scriptura, why is scripture alone, scripture alone, that's yes. a big deal, the most, you know, one of the most important things in the five solas. Um, Which that's a big deal that we keep uh, pushing is that the point of the solas is the sola the word sola right alone too many times people want to study the one of these solas and they get off on 
off topic, actually, because they start studying grace or faith or Christ. Or, right. I mean, solus Christus is not Chris Christology. Huh. I mean, w- because what it's about is, okay, yeah, all of them believe in Christ, but what makes it part of the sola? The fact that it's in Christ alone. alone. And so the same thing we hear with Scripture, there's lots of things we could study about Scripture. We could talk about canon. We could talk about uh, the inerrancy of Scripture and that sort of thing and the arguments around all that. <clears throat> but that's not <clears throat> right. That's not uh, the main point. Right. Well, and I think that um, sola scriptura was one of the one of the three that Martin Luther really hammered on mm-hmm. uh, more than actually more than any other. I think Martin Luther spent time besides grace. Martin Luther spent time on on fighting for scripture, mm-hmm. and um, and it's one that that gets kind of like glanced over. But it, it really was the backbone of the Reformation. Um, so many different reasons why. Um, so the first question that we have whenever we we do this is, uh, where does the proof lie? We've talked about grace through faith in Christ. But where do we find that? And the answer is, we find it in Scripture. Well, the question is, how do we know that Scripture is accurate? And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, mm-hmm. although I think it's important to provide a little bit of a backbone. <clears throat> yes. We're going to spend a lot of time just looking at history. So how do we know the Scripture is accu- accurate? I have a quote by Dionysius. Have you ever heard of Dionysius? Yes. He was uh, one of the earliest Christian fathers we have. Um, he was the Bishop of Corinth. Um, in 171, right around 170 AD, and this is what he says. We endeavor as far as possible to hold to and confirm the things which lay before us. And if reason gives given satisfies us, we were not ashamed to change our opinions and agree with others. But on the contrary, conscientiously and sincerely, and with hearts laid open before God, we accept whatever was established by the proofs and teachings of the Holy Scriptures. Okay? Mm. This is around 171. Why do I make that point? Well, I make that... Because it's before the Nicene Council. <clears throat> yes, it's 300 years before the Nicene Council. We have a man by the name of Dionysius saying, we hold to the Holy Scriptures. What? You mean Dan Brown didn't get didn't have it right? I... Mean- I I mean exactly Dan Brown <laughs> didn't have it right. So let's let's talk Bart about Bart Ehrman. Yeah, Bart, good old Bart. Uh let's talk about the Old and New Testament um considerably. Now there's a couple things that you need whenever you're uh proving the authenticity of scripture. Mm-hmm. The first one is quality and the second one is quantity. And then you need to backbone that with or or put that against time frame. So quality, quantity, time frame. Those are the three proofs of scripture, right? Um, so let's talk about quality and quantity. There is no other ancient manuscript as accurate as the Old Testament. No other ancient manuscript as accurate. Why is this, David? Because the scribes were so crazy about it. They were meticulous. Like, yes. They were the <laughs> rock stars of their time frame, and they were because of their accuracy. If they if they screwed up in their work, they were like dishonored. Right. So imagine imagine you're transcribing uh, Genesis, and so you got to understand. First off, they didn't have the printing press. There was right. no internet. There right. was no technology other than paper and or papyrus and pen. Right. Mm-hmm. And so if they wanted to get a workout, they would have scribes who wrote down word for word. Uh, and copied from copies. Right. So that may sound like it's very inaccurate because we all know when we take notes, we can copy and totally get yep. the wrong thing. But these scribes were extremely meticulous. How meticulous, you ask? Well, <laughs> imagine you're transcribing Genesis and you sneeze and make a little bump on an N. <laughs> you would take that scroll and you would crumple it up and you'd throw it away to be burned. Yeah. Why was that? Because they treated... Because it's not good anymore. <clears throat> it's not good anymore. Thanks. Am I snotting? <laughs> no, I was talking about sneezing on the paper. Yes, not good anymore. Nice. <laughs> that was good. Man, I'm out of it. All right, so it, it wasn't. It wasn't good to them. They treated the Holy Scriptures with more uh, reverence 
then especially the Torah, yeah. the Old Testament, first five, books. the first five books was ex- extremely important to them. So they would transcribe the Tanakh with ferocious accuracy, and you couldn't even touch a uh, a Sefer Torah. Sefer, uh, the Sefirim is the group of scribes. Right. If a, if a scribe did it, you couldn't even touch it. Right. Like it was that holy. Like they had a stick they with had a little stick. with a little hand on the end of it, and you could you could point to your text with that, but right. you couldn't touch it with your hand. Exactly. That's how holy it was. Mm-hmm. So how do we know this for sure? Well, one need only look at the Dead Sea Scrolls found in the 1940s mm-hmm. uh, by a shepherd boy who's skipping rocks on a pond and throws rocks into a cave and ends up. He's actually trying to get breaks. a goat out of a. Oh, really? He's trying to. Get, he lost a goat up in a in a cave and didn't want to climb up there, so he tried to throw rocks. So in So he's the cave. throwing rocks in the cave. Yeah, I didn't know that. <clears throat> I always just said he's skipping rocks. <laughs> what else is Shepherd Boy's gonna do? Yeah. Skip, anyway, well, it was kind of in the desert though. So by the Dead Sea, though. Well, yeah, but not like on the on Dead the Dead Sea. sea. Yeah. You're blowing. You you're dead, blowing my time you can frame. See the I'm on my mind right now. <laughs> Sorry, like my whole landscape is just blown. Anyways, so well, I've got the advantage of having been the Quran. Yeah, Quran. So, so you've seen it. Yeah, but uh, anyway, so <clears throat> the shepherd boys throwing rocks in a cave. Here's breakage. They mm-hmm. go back and they explore and they find pots of ancient writings uh, with ancient scrolls contained in them. Right. Um, Predating the Masoretic text, which is the text that we had mm-hmm. previously, the earliest text by a thousand years. Yeah, easy. And uh, yeah, and uh, and they look at it, and it is ninety nine point nine percent accurate mm-hmm. to the to those. The entire Book of Isaiah was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, right? And it matches, like uh, they they call that find, um, or the, the actual the Masoretic copy of that is called the Aleppo text and the Aleppo text and the Dead Sea Scrolls copy of Isaiah are identical letter for letter. (laughs) So that should tell you how accurate these scribes were. Mm -hmm. It is the most accurate manuscript in the Old Testament or in the world. Mm -hmm. So what about quality? Well, let's talk about the New Testament or quantity. Let's talk about the New Testament for a second. We have more ancient copies of the New Testament than we have of any other ancient writing, including what you learn in school, Gilgamesh, or the Odyssey, Homer's Odyssey. We have more copies Mm -hmm. of the New Testament. Socrates, Plato, all of that stuff. Exactly. We have way more copies. Like, it's not even close. Like, we're talking, like, the writings of Plato, we have, like, 25 manuscripts of that. Right. There's, like, over 5,000 manuscripts of the Old Testament. Right, so it's <laughs> it, it's it just blows it out, and it, if you if you put these back up against each other you, together, when you compare the text, you have a ninety nine point five percent accuracy rate mm-hmm. because of the amount of text that we have. So quality, quantity, you're not going to find any other ancient writing as more um, authoritative as the Old and New Testaments. Mm-hmm. Okay, so get that out of the way. I don't want to focus a lot of time on that, but I do want to talk about the time frame because that's another big deal when you're talking about authenticity. Um, Dead Sea Scrolls written between 150 BC, 70 AD. That's the earliest copy of the Old Testament mm-hmm. we have. New Testament written between 50 to 150, roughly, um, and that's dating it late. Uh, the Maturian canon around 180 AD. Most early church fathers, like I was mentioning before mm-hmm. um, with Dionysius, treated the New Testament books as canon by or God's word as early as 150 AD. We have we have reports of early church fathers walking around with New Testament canon right. and treating it like it was God's Guess word. Guess what? Before the Nicene Council. 300 years <laughs> before the Nicene Council. The mm-hmm. Nicene Council canonizing the New Testament was an afterthought to it, them. And it really wasn't even canonization. It was there to argue the deity of Jesus. Right, that was the whole purpose. And they basically just said, oh, and these are the texts we used to help try and back up our claim. Exactly. And they listed them out, and all of a sudden, oh, they defined canon. That's the def- definition of canon. Well, no, definition defined canon was way earlier than that, whenever mm-hmm. these these uh, early church fathers were carrying them around and treating them as holy scripture. Like, we're talking 150, okay? So that's extremely early on. Yeah. Um, big, big deal. So 
let's talk a little about uh, since we've talked about how we know that scripture is accurate. Let's discuss biblical authority. Okay. Okay. So let's walk on a little bit more in church history. Uh, past a couple crusades, the Pope becomes supreme ruler of Rome, basically. <laughs> I wrote a book. Exactly. Uh, the Latin Vulgate is created, and <laughs> it stays that way for the rest for of... A thousand years. A thousand years, yeah. basically. The Bible is completed, and almost like they set it on a shelf mm-hmm. and moved on, yeah. right? And it was it was a noble undertaking, because the idea was we're losing these languages. These languages are changing. Latin was <clears throat> Latin was falling Latin, dead, and well, Latin was already dead, and so right. it was like, okay, well, if we if we write it in Latin, it'll never change, and so that was the right. That's what, so yes. that was the concept of translating it into Latin was we get it out of these languages that are changing, like Greek. And Hebrew, even Hebrew was going the way of the dinosaur. That's why the Masoretes even right. did what they did. And so it was like, let's put this into a text that will never change. Right. And so that was the whole point. So, yeah, it's it's a noble undertaking. But what happens when you have, when you put something in a dead language <laughs> that nobody speaks? No one reads it. Nobody reads it. And so it does. It ends up sitting on the shelf. Um, when the Pope is declared papal authority and the church has ultimate authority and it, the church goes ahead of Scripture as far as authority, um, you get some corrupt popes in there. They do some corrupt things. So... Fast forward to to the 1500s when Martin Luther's around, and the church has drastically become different mm-hmm. than the early church, um, to the point where salvation is obtained through doing the mass and following the prescribed steps, uh, giving your um, um, indulgences. Indulgences. That's right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and, and taking the systems of atonement exactly. So, doing the seven, you know, the seven sacraments, going to confession, all this yeah. stuff. So, enter on the scene this guy Martin Luther. Now, <clears throat> let's talk a little bit about Martin. He was uh, from Germany, born into a pretty wealthy family. Um, was going to become a lawyer. His parents wanted him to become a lawyer, so he's going to become a lawyer. Um, so he's pretty faithful at studying. He's he's a hardcore studier. Uh, reads reads a lot. Um, so one night when he's riding from I can't remember where to, but he ends up riding through a forest and there's a lightning storm, right? And uh, it's storming really bad, and he starts screaming out, "God save me! I'll be a monk! God save me! I'll be a monk!" Mm-hmm. So he ends up making it through that, and he's good to his word, and he becomes a monk. Okay. Um, Luther was extremely big on this question of salvation mm. um, to the point where he knew, he, he got the concept that he wasn't good enough. He understood that. Uh, he would and that made, that made things mind-boggling. Right. Because here's a guy who he tries to pay, and he does, he pays his, he, he pays his indulgences. Mm-hmm. He does all of the, he follows all the canons, or all the, not canons, all the, uh, um, oh my goodness, the seven sacraments. Yeah. To the T. To the point where he's spending six hours in a confessional. Now, what a pope has to confess for six hours, I have no clue, but this guy was serious about his confession, right? Spend six hours in a confession. Who does that, Yeah, right? Um, because he knew his heart. You can spend all day in there if you really start examining your heart. To the, po- <laughs> to the point where uh, his priest is basically like, listen, Martin. Look, go home. Go home, and unless you do something really bad, don't come back. Like, that's how serious he was. He would lock himself in closets and whip himself mm-hmm. because he knew how evil he was and how messed up he was. Um, so he gets sent uh, to Wittenberg, um, and while he's there, he becomes he gets sent to be professor of theology at the, the University of Wittenberg, and uh, while he's there, he reads the New Testament and is blown away by what he finds mm-hmm. to the point where he realizes, man, nothing that we're doing matches what's prescribed here. Ends up writing the 95 Thesis. Didn't want to... Uh, um, didn't want to start 
this Reformation simply wanted to say, hey, here's some things that yeah, I see are wrong. I got a problem here. Exactly. And and it we we've got to understand that grace is by faith, you know, or salvation is by grace through faith. And so anyways, all boils down to this diet of worms. Okay? Mm-hmm. Where we're going, mm-hmm. where we end up going. And that, that's not <laughs> Martin Luther didn't eat a bunch of worms. What happened was uh he's called to Stand before the Holy Roman Emperor, mm-hmm. so that tells you how severe that they're considering so this. The location was Worms. Yeah, it was in Worms, and so um, he stands before the Holy Roman Emperor. And by this time, he had written several books. A lot of them really railing papal authority <laughs> and yeah. uh, bishop authority. He sees errors in church history. Um, a whole bunch of stuff that they are really just getting wrong and don't line up with Scripture. And so he gets there, and all his works are laid out in front of him in all these books. Mm -hmm. Um, Something that helped Martin Luther out before was uh, the invention of the printing press. Now, um, there were earlier reformers. Mm -hmm. Sorry about Wycliffe for a second. Wycliffe definitely saw error. Yeah. In the church, um, he was he was a but he priest wasn't a, as well. He wasn't an activist. He wasn't an activist. But one of the things he did was <clears throat> he decided, you know what, I'm going to do. I'm I'm going to uh, I'm going to put the scripture into English, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. so that people are able to to read it for themselves. You know, nothing happened with him. But after the Reformation, they dug up his body and burn it. Yeah, that's how serious well, they were about his, it. Plus, his his translation, although it was a noble effort. Kind of went nowhere because he there was no such thing as a printing press. Exactly, whenever, that's what I'm talking about. Whenever he did it, so <clears throat> one of the things that Martin Luther has going for him is this invention of the printing press. So mm-hmm. his works are spreading across Germany and uh, and across the rest of of Christendom. And um, something that was going on at this time is people were fed up with the church. They were being taxed to death by the church. They weren't getting anything for this other than you're going to go to heaven when you die, right? And uh, right. and they were basically under the thumb of Christendom. And so they were they were frustrated. They were at the boiling point, and Martin Luther was the one giving them the, the ammunition to throw back at the Pope's face. And so this was a big deal to the Catholic Church. That's why it was such a big deal, to the point where the Holy Roman Emperor is the one that's going to preside over this <clears throat> court. If it mm-hmm. wasn't such a big deal, they probably would have put some lesser-known bishop Right, right, in, in charge of it. So when Martin Luther travels there, you've got to understand his mind frame. This is a time when they would put you to death for stealing a loaf of bread. Okay, <laughs> this is a time when penalty for going against the church is quite severe. Nobody did it, and if you did it, there's a good chance you'd you'd die. So Martin Luther is going to this this trial knowing that. He's going to end up probably dying for this. Yeah. Okay? So he gets there. They lay out all the books in front of him, and they say, basically, are these your works? And Martin answers, yeah, yeah, (laughs) these are my works. A sheep is about it. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) If you can imagine Martin Luther being sheepish. And the Holy Roman Emperor basically says, do you recant? And he says, can I have a night to think about it? Because he's really stressed out about this. Yeah. Right? You, you got to think. This is his, his life. And so they're like, we'll give you a night. So he goes he goes back to where he's staying. <coughs> that night, he starts praying. And we have recorded what he prays. It's one of the coolest <coughs> prayers I've ever read. But it's awesome. But I'll just read the, the end of it. Sorry, excuse me. This is what he says. Lord, where art thou? My God, where art thou? Come, I pray thee, I am ready. Behold, me prepared to lay down my life for thy truth, suffering like a lamb. For the cause is holy. It is thine own. I will not let thee go, no, nor for yet all eternity. And though the world should be thronged with devils, and this body, which is the work of thine hand, should be cast forth, trodden underfoot, cut to pieces, consumed to ashes, my soul is thine. Yes, 
I have thine own word to assure me of it. My soul belongs to thee and will abide with thee forever. Amen. O God, send help. Amen. <laughs> That's awesome. That's pretty amazing. It's, he was so convinced. It's very Davidic. That's right. Mm-hmm. That he's, he's going, all right, God, I don't see where you're at. You didn't show up to the diet of worms like I thought, you know. Yeah. So here I am, and I'm about to go, and I'm about to die. But what does he say? He says, I know that my soul is yours. Even if they cut me to pieces, trod me underfoot, which they would do, by the yeah, way, yeah. Uh, even, even though they kill me, I know my soul is yours because your word tells me that my soul is yours, and that's what I stand on. Mm-hmm. You see, before this, what did you stand on? You, st- you stood on the church and what it said about you. Right. Whether or not you were good with God or not. Right. And one of the things that Martin Luther is facing here in this this Diet of Worms is excommunication. When the Pope makes an official degree and stamps it with his stamp that you are no longer a part of the church, you are damned to hell. Right. For all eternity. So Martin Luther, who has grown, imagine growing up in this belief system mm-hmm. all your life, being confirmed as a monk under this belief system, and now standing on the brink and going, am I going to stand on God's word and what he says, or am I going to recant and go with what I've always heard to be true? Yeah, that's a tough one. What am I going to do? And, you know, speaking from a little bit of experience, I mean, that's a hard thing to stand up against doctrines that you know are inaccurate but that you grew up with or that you that that just you know the church you were in has pushed on knew that this was the truth and that without it you're going to hell right right and uh so yeah it's a scary scary thing because your whole family your your friends your relationships all those are hanging in the balance and you know, in this case, even your life, your yeah. very life is in danger here. And so <laughs> it just boggles my mind the amount of faith that you have to have to, ba- to basically say, I don't care about any of that because I know that God is with me on this. Yeah. Uh, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, one of the greatest mm-hmm. hymns in, written by Martin Luther. The body they may kill. His truth availeth steel. His kingdom is forever. Right, mm-hmm. and so he he has this unquenchable and undefiable stance. And what is it on? It's on Scripture. Mm-hmm. What he's saying is, I'm I'm not going to stand on the Pope. I'm not going to stand on anything else. My hope is built on Scripture. Mm-hmm. Right, my faith. Right. right. That that what the Bible says is true. Okay, so anyways, next day he gets there, and uh, they ask him the same question, and he delivers a speech. And I'm not going to go through the whole speech, mm-hmm. but he's it's an awesome speech. Yeah, it's a great speech. But, but in the end, the uh, the guy's like, "Shut up! I want a simple answer. Do you recant or not?" And this is what this is what Luther says. Since your most serene majesty and your high mightiness require of me a simple, clear, and direct answer, I will give you one. And it is this. I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to the council because it is as clear as noonday that they have fallen into error and even into glaring inconsistency with themselves. If then... I am not convinced by proof from Holy Scripture if I am not satisfied by the very text I have cited and if my judgment is not in this way brought into subjection to God's word, I neither can nor will retract anything for it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I can do I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. <laughs> I love that. Unless I'm convinced 
by Holy Scripture, unless I'm convinced by the Word of God, I will not back down. Mm-hmm. I can't do anything else. He was dead set on this Holy Scripture. Mm-hmm. So, what is it that makes Scripture important? Well, let's talk about something called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. <laughs> Have you ever heard of this? No. Okay. So we know what a quadrilateral is, right? Yeah. A, and I know who John Wesley is. You know who John Wesley is. He's a great guy, uh, although he's wrong on this. Um, <laughs> and this is way after the Reformation, right. but it's something that I can use to to show you why Scripture alone must, must be Scripture alone. Okay. So a quadrilateral is basically a square with four equal sides, right? Mm-hmm. Four equal sides make up a quadrilateral. Well, the Wesleyan quadrilateral says that your truth or your belief must end on these four things. The first one is reason. Now, if we were honest, we would say that our truth does have something to do with what we reason, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly... If, if it doesn't, if you don't understand, if it, you don't understand right. it, it's not going to be a truth to you. Right. But if it's it's what makes sense to you, then it's going to be a truth to you. Right. Second one, tradition. <laughs> now, a lot of us may buck that. Nah, tradition. That's not that's not where you get your truth. But the reality is, you are what you're born into. Right. So much of who you are is because of tradition passed on to you. Mm-hmm. So whether you not you like it. Whether you like it or not, tradition has a part to play in how you find truth or where you find truth. Right. Even if it's going away from that tradition. Exactly. Even if it drives you away from the from the tradition, it right. still plays a heavy role. Right. Even even Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians, he was talking to a papist, and the papist said, "Are you are you trying to tell me that a thousand years of priests have been wrong?" So what's he talking about? Tradition, right? Absolutely. And Martin Luther's answer was, yes, a thousand years of priests have been wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Tradition, uh, but tradition is part of our faith system. It's it's what makes us who we are. So reason, tradition. Third one is experience. What we experience in our lives drives what we see to be true and what we see to be false. Mm -hmm. And this is not just about the gospel. This is about everything in our lives. Okay, reason, tradition, experience, and of course the fourth is scripture. Okay, so these four things stand together to form our faith, our basis for belief, and all of them are equal. Well, there's a problem if all of them are equal. If that's the case, then there is no firm foundation Mm -hmm. because your reason can be faulty, right? Your experience can definitely be faulty. Mm-hmm. Your tradition can definitely be faulty. One of these four things has to be an in, absolute, an sort. absolute, right. inerrant, or it makes no sense, mm-hmm. or at least a hundred percent trustworthy. I mean, you just go there. I mean, you're none of those other things are trustworthy. Exactly. Scripture must be the rule. Mm-hmm. By which we define tradition, experience, and reason. All things, uh, tradition, experience, and reason must be put up against the judgment of Scripture. That's why it's Scripture alone that gives us our truth. Scripture alone, through the Holy Spirit, God communicates in Scripture alone to give us theology. Yes. Okay? And that is absolute you cannot have anything else beside uh, besides scripture trying to dictate what is truth because everything else is faulty mm-hmm. but scripture is god's inerrant word and that's the reason that martin luther was able to stand there and say I don't care if you stamp a piece of paper that says I'm going to hell when I die. I don't care if you cut me into pieces. I don't care if you burn my body. I stand on the truth because I know what's true. Well, what, what I think is is funny here is uh, he gets his hand on the on the letter of excommunication and throws it in the in the fire. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. 
<laughs> okay. So, in order to understand that, we we do need some biblical proof. Even though we've looked on the outside mm-hmm. of Scripture to prove Scripture, we need to look on the inside of Scripture to prove Scripture. So, I'm going to ask you to look up a couple things. Okay. First one is the obvious one that everybody goes to, 2 Timothy 3.16. Um which says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that a man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Okay, so Paul is writing to Timothy here, and he gives Timothy the the tool for which to preach, yep. basically. You're going to be the guy who comes up behind me. That's right. And picks up the mantle. And you must use scripture. Because scripture is the thing that's profitable, profitable for teaching, for reproof, right? Mm-hmm. And for bringing up a man. And so, if you look in Paul's writings, what does he use to back up his arguments? Scripture. He quotes it all the time. Scripture. The Old Testament is mm-hmm. what he quotes over and over and over again to show his truth. Now, we may look at this and we may, may go, well, yeah, Jeremiah, but that's he's talking about the Old Testament there. And I believe Paul was talking about the Old Testament. That's what he meant yeah. when he said Scripture. Because there was no other at this point. There was no other at this point. But I, I am not so naive to believe that God did not supernaturally put that in there mm-hmm. to argue for New and Old Testament. Scripture is what we use to teach and reprove. Not a man's doctrine under decree, but Scripture alone is what we must use, okay? Isaiah 40 and verse 8. Okay, Isaiah 40. Verse 8 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Okay, but the word of our God will stand forever. And I believe that that's specifically talking about Scripture. Why do I believe that? Because guess what? It's been forever. Mm-hmm. since the beginning, that the Word of God has stood. It may have been put on a shelf, it may have been hidden for a thousand years, but it will always pop back up. Why? Because it's the indoctrinal Word of God. It's it's what we base our belief off of. Um, and another thing that just popped up in my head here, you're talking about how uh, the New Testament can be considered Scripture, Absolutely. like even under... Uh, their writings. Uh, Peter himself was talking about the writings of Paul, and listen what he says in in uh, this is Second uh, Peter three sixteen. He says, uh, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them on these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. <laughs> So Peter, it, Peter's even giving Paul some scriptural authority. Yeah, he's giving him a, a, the authority that this is coming from the Holy Spirit. Exactly. Exactly. So the biggest chapter of the biggest book in the Bible mm-hmm. is Psalm chapter 119, right? And the entire thing, it's pretty interesting because if you kind of half your <clears throat> Bible in half... Yeah, it's pretty much right there in the middle. It's going to pop open to Psalm 119. I think that God is pretty epic when he did that, (laughs) because the entire chapter... Now, Psalm 119 has 176 verses, Mm -hmm. okay? Huge, gigantic chapter of Psalms. Yeah, a lot to say. Yeah, Christina and I were praying through the Psalms a couple years ago, (laughs) and we'd be happy and happy, and then we'd hit Psalm 119 and just be like... Okay, here we go. Like, you know, buckle up because it's going to take forever. It is broken down into stanzas. (laughs) Yes, it's broken down into stanzas, but the whole thing, the entirety of this psalm is straight up about God's word. Mm -hmm. God's law, his decrees, his commandments. Yeah. He uses that vernacular. How steadfast everything is. Exactly. But the whole thing is your commandments stand forever. And I love, of course, the most famous one, verse 119 uh, or chapter 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. I have sworn and I will perform it that I will keep your righteous judgments. Your word, your word is a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. The psalmist here gets it mm-hmm. that we tread 
based off of Scripture. Scripture lights our path. It's the thing that guides us and shows us where we need to go and what we need to believe. And Martin Luther got that. That's why sola scripture is so important. That's why we cannot trust in our reason. We cannot trust in our tradition. And so many people fall prey to those two things. Mm-hmm. Trusting in the reason of their tradition. That's the reason why they were in the mess they were in. Exactly. Because most people, well, almost everybody hates change. Yeah. And whenever you're in a system that hasn't changed or has changed very little in or any marked way at all for a period of time, it it is really hard to think differently. Yeah. It's you've been programmed and you have to be deprogrammed. Well, and it's and it's not just about scripture, it's about every little nuanced belief. Mm-hmm. I mean, think of your parents Upbringing, how your parents raised you, is is a lot of who you become. Yeah, and that's you know that can be an awesome thing, it can be a bad thing, but there's a point where you have to step out and you have to look at your tradition. If your tradition does not line up with what the Bible says, then it's it's not good. Now, we could be very dangerous with that statement and say. We speak where the Bible speaks, and we're silent where the Bible's silent, and then we speak where the Bible's silent as well, right? Right, right. So how dare you bring an electric guitar into the, the church because <laughs> there's no that's not in Scripture. Right. Well, the electric guitar wasn't invented back then. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> Don't go that far with that. But you have to take and you have to understand Scripture for what it's saying, too. Mm-hmm. It's, it's dangerous whenever you can misread or misquote it. So. Right. Well, and well, part of that understanding too is to understand that the Bible is not a rule book. That's not what it's intended to be. All right. So that's where so. actually I'm going next. Okay. Go to Hebrews chapter four, verse twelve through thirteen. Oh, hang on one second. I gotta get my other verse. Hebrews four. Yes. Verse twelve and thirteen. Okay. Verse twelve says, "For the word of God." is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, and no creatures hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Okay, so why is Scripture alone so so absolutely important. I think it hinges on on these verses. The word of God is living and it's active. It's sharp and it cuts us mm-hmm. and it exposes who we are. Yeah. What is the Bible about? When we we take a step back and we look at the Bible and the narrative that the mm-hmm. Bible holds. Yeah. The story that the Bible has. Fallen reconciliation with God. That's it. That's the narrative. Martin Luther says it this way. The Bible is the cradle wherein Christ is laid. Mm, that's great. The Bible is the cradle wherein Christ is laid. When we step back and we look at Scripture, let's start in Genesis. We have the fall of man, total depravity. Mm-hmm. We see God covering the nakedness of man. This is in the Garden of Eden. We haven't stepped out three chapters. Right. And we have redemption. <laughs> And the fall of man. Move on a little bit further, right? You have the story of the ark and the first covenant, right? You you move on a little bit farther, and you have you bring up Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, which is a unilateral covenant, right? Right? You see a a pattern starting to emerge. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. I will take care of you. I will bless you. God makes the covenant with Himself, right? Yeah, right. And and then you move on, and you have. Abraham taking his son Isaac up to sacrifice him and says God himself will be the sacrifice, the sacrifice yes. yeah. right? You have a picture of Christ there over and over. I, I just discovered one the other day when I was reading before Isaac in Abraham and the story of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah, right. how the angel of the Lord went down into a 
damned uh, city, <laughs> a, a condemned city, and brought out people and said, but don't look back. Right. Don't look back. <laughs> That's a picture of salvation right there, right? Yes. So you move on over and over and over through the Levitical law, through the giving of the sacrificial system, through the 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 millions of times that Israel screwed up, cried out, and God redeemed them. Mm. And over and over and over again, you see a picture of God interacting with a fallen world and putting it back to, together through Christ. The Old Testament points forward to Christ. Yeah. The, the New Testament points back to Christ. And it all yeah. holds Jesus. So why is the Bible important? It's because of what the Bible's all about. The Bible is all about your story with God and his story of Jesus. Yes, it is the it is the entire message is the t- entire story of the human race. That's right. From beginning to end and to completion. Right. And it's and it's his story of redemption. Mm-hmm. It holds Jesus. And so, you cannot add anything to this story. You can't go, all right, it's going to be Jesus and yeah. This, you know, your, your confessional and Buddha. It's going to be Jesus and, you know, <laughs> doing this, or Jesus yeah. and, you know, your tradition. Right. The Bible holds Jesus. That's why it's so important. We aren't worshiping Scripture here. What we're worshiping is what is revealed in Scripture, right. which is holy and righteous. What God the Scripture Jesus. points to exactly, which is His holiness. Which is that's the reason why it should be. Sola Scriptura, and nothing, mm. nothing else. We should stand on the Word of God. The greatest, most theologically sound song ever. Jesus loves me, this I know, <laughs> for the Bible tells me so. Yeah, Little ones to him belong, they're weak, but he's, he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me, for the Bible tells me so. And the Bible is the thing that cuts us open and shows us who we are mm. and what we need. Yes. That's why it's living and it's active and it's sharper than and, two and, and that whole thing about it being living and active is so evident. If you've ever been a student of the Bible, if not, you need to start doing this because it will amaze you. It is living. It is active. You can read a passage you've read your entire life. Okay, just like you were saying. Yeah. How many times have you heard the story of Lot in your life? I'm teaching it right? as an <laughs> educator in a Christian private school, teaching the story of Lot when God right. smacks me in the face with the truth. So what's he doing? He he's It's active. It's moving. It's reaching into your heart. It's piercing into the very marrow of your existence and giving you... Because, I mean, we read that verse in Hebrews like it's a bad thing. It's not necessarily a bad thing. No. It is embedding itself into you. It's like screwing its way into your heart and into your body. Right. And as you read it, I mean, like, okay, another good one is this. The Proverbs, Hmm. a very popular devotion is to read a proverb a day because there's 31 proverbs and most months have 30 or 31 days. days. Yep. And so you can very easily go through the book of Proverbs in a month. And so, uh, <coughs> but the thing is, if you do that regularly, I guarantee you second month is going to be different than the first month. That's right. Like I, I, I did this one time as like an example. Write down the parts of the, of the chapter that move you, like that hits you. And then when you come back and do it again, <laughs> yeah, it'll be totally you're writing different. different things. But it's the same passage. You're reading the same That's right. chapters. It is active. It is living. It is it is extraterrestrial, as we've said here right. before. It's not of this earth. And therefore, it's the one thing that is unchanging that we stand upon. Mm. We we cannot we cannot stand on anything else. We have to stand on the Word of God, not on our experience, not not on our tradition, not even on our own reason. Right. We must stand on the <clears> Word <throat> of God, and that's what made Martin Luther so authoritative whenever he was facing death and excommunication. Mm-hmm. He got excommunicated. God saved him. One of the miracles of the Reformation is that, is that he, he wasn't he martyred, wasn't martyred <laughs> but it was just perfect timing for him. 
to be saved. In fact, there was a plot to kill him on the way back from the Diet of Worms, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, he escaped, yep. <laughs> hidden in a barrel. <laughs> so, uh, brilliant truth. But anyways, Sola Scriptura, here awesome. I stand. You That's got some it. news, man? Yep. And now, the news. <sighs> Temple Mount Excavation yields new finds. Did you know they're ex- yeah, excavating them? All right. They've been digging on it for a long time. I know. Muslims are not happy about it. No. Because they actually have the Temple Mount. You know, it's their property. Right. <laughs> and a part of the... Of Jerusalem. In fact, the Dome of the Rock, under. Dome of the Rock, sits on Temple Mount as well as a different uh, Islamic worship mosque, Al Aqwas, whatever. <laughs> Anyways, Israeli archaeologists recently uncovered eight previously unearthed sections of the Temple Mount retaining wall in Jerusalem as part of the Roman era theater in an area ab- abutting the wall. Researchers estimate that the theater is around 1,800 years old and believe the Roman Emperor uh, Hadrian likely built it when Hmm. he rebuilt the city of Jerusalem as a Roman colony. Wow. So, yeah, they've unearthed uh, a new theater that's an old theater. (laughs) Old, not (laughs) new. A new old theater. There's a new theater of ours. (laughs) That's correct. Um, Got a new venue for concerts now. (laughs) That's right. Under the dome. But the theater, it looks like they were working on it. It stopped abruptly. Like, they didn't finish the theater, whoever was building oh, it. Oh, okay. So, they don't know when that So, happened. they think it predates the Temple Mount. Is that what they're saying? No. Or? They're saying it, it post-dates it. 8132 to 135. Oh, okay. Temple Mount was completely destroyed in 8070, right? Well, the Temple was. The mount was is still there, right? But the but. temple was raised in eighty seventy, mm-hmm. destroyed, um, and then the mosques were built on top of it. So. Yeah, uh, but it's you know it's kind of exciting that they're excavating that. I really would like to see them find some actual artifacts. Mm-hmm. The Ark of the temple. Covenant, like kind of be cool. But that's over in what is it, Uganda or something? Oh, I think it's in Ethiopia. Yeah, but what do, do you I really think? think it's in Ethiopia? I kind of do. That's all right. Yeah. But whatever. Okay. So there's a uh there's an article called So Tomorrow's Halloween. All Halloween. <laughs> even though it is and Reformation, Reformation Day. Day, which is more important, but there's an Holy Ghost power. That's awful. There are ten things that you didn't know about Halloween, and I don't know if this is correct or not, so you can go back <laughs> and you can research it yourself. But apparently Halloween began as a Christian holiday. Halloween-style celebrations probably began as part of the ancient Celtic fire festival. It didn't become a worldwide phenomenon until Christians got involved. Here's what happened. In early to mid-7th century, it was customary for Christians to honor all the nameless martyrs by remembering and celebrating them on a single day called All Hallows' Day. So, in the early 8th century, Pope Gregory decreed that All Hallows' Day should be observed on November 1st, a date chosen to replace sporadic pagan fall festivals like Samhain with a universal Christian holy day. By the 11th century, church leaders had expanded the celebration to include November 2nd, and they called it Hallowsmas, or Hallowtide. As history moved on, it became a Christian tradition to mark the state of Hallowsmas with a prayer vigil the night before. On October 31st, Christian called it All Hallows' Eve, which eventually got shortened to Halloween until it was finally Halloween. Or Halloween. Yeah. (laughs) Until it was finally Halloween. I'm here to tell you that each and every time you spoon into a bowl of Lucky Charms, you might as well be partaking of Lucifer's sacrament. (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Uh, Let's see. Before he was the Jack O'Lantern, he was Jack, an Irish sinner. Have you ever heard this? No. Many millions of orange gourds are <laughs> gleefully carved on the candles in Halloween, thus transforming into jack-o'-lanterns that decorate our porches and windows. But did you know that cheery Jack face in your home was originally intended as a cautionary symbol of scare straight Ireland's wayward children? Really? According to legend, the original Jack was a miserly, evil-tempered man. Such a devious sinner he was, Jack even managed to outsmart the devil himself on occasion. 
When Jack died and stood to face his judgment, he was banned from heaven on account of his sinful life and banned from hell because the devil held a grudge. The result? (laughs) Ghostly Jack was condemned to trudge the earth for all time with only a single coal from hell to light the darkness of his punished. (laughs) A single coal from hell. Single coal. Oh, coal. Yeah, single coal. Burning inside his face. Hello, this is hell calling. (laughs) Hello. I get my phone call. (laughs) All right, so the reason people wear costumes? To... Fit in with roaming spirits. You ever heard that? No. To fit in. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like The Walking Dead when you rub guts all over yourself so the zombies won't eat you. Yeah, kind of, kind of like that. Halloween fed the hungry and helped the poor. In keeping with its Christian roots for many generations in Europe, Halismus was not only a time of prayer, it was also a time of charity and social kindness. Mm. The monks of Cluny Abbey in France famously made it a habit to distribute food to the poor during this annual holiday. Additionally, many Christian families prepared tasty soul cakes to share with those less fortunate (laughs) neighbors. Most likely, these were some kind of spice cake, such as cinnamon or nutmeg, with a cross on the top. Poor children would knock on the doors of their wealthier neighbors, sing a little rhyme, and offer a pray offer to pray blessings on a house in exchange for the coveted little cakes. Ah. Although this didn't clear historical proof of it, this may be the soul cake tradition inspired the current trick or treat candy salvation. Wow. Kinda so, cool. So now you know the rest of the story. Mm. <clears throat> Anyways, um, it was called by nine other, or tons of other names, Goosey Night, Corn Night, Cabbage Night, Cabbage Night, Beggar's Night, Prank Night, Bonfire yeah. Night, Mischief Night. It's Cabbage Night. Yeah. Cabbage Night. <laughs> like Taco Woo! Tuesday. Cabbage Night. <laughs> oh, my gosh. In America? We should do that. We should like just <laughs> hand out cabbage. You don't know how good you got it. Plop some cabbage <laughs> down in front of them. Kids used to be happy to get a handful of cabbage on this. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. In America, we spend nearly $8 billion on Halloween each year. Wow. Including $1.25 billion on children's costumes, $1.5 billion on adult costumes, and $2.3 billion on candy. Wow. More than two-thirds of the U.S. celebrate Halloween. Three quarters pass out candy and nearly half don a costume. Got one word. Diabetes. Diabetes. Each Halloween season, the average person in America spends $32 on a costume, $27 on candy, and 24 bucks on decorations. Wow. <laughs> That's sad. That's really sad. That's one of those world hunger fixing things. Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> Anyways. All right. Today in church history... Oh, wait a minute. Got to get in the TARDIS. Oh, sorry. I did. Where are you? Where you stop that at? I usually fade it out. Goodness gracious. But I was like zoning. So (laughs) I was just playing. Today today in church history... (laughs) A year after Martin Luther, Lutherism made official in Denmark. Denmark, Germany's neighbors, accepted Lutherism as their official really, yeah, theology. Their, their official religion, huh? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. It was not a year later. It was like 100 years later, it looks like. Oh, that, 1536. Makes, that makes a little more sense, yeah. 1536. Bill Reed, Dibbers, a bill redistributed, dis- <laughs> distributed, goodness gracious. That whiskey. Uh, power the between corn, the church and the corn state. whiskey. That's right. Lutherism became the official religion of Denmark, and Christian III promised to appoint new bishops. Mm. Wow. Very interesting. Yeah. So that was in the height of the Reformation. Yeah. Anyways. Yep. That was the... That was actually the year Tyndale died. Oh. 1536. Died. That's mm-hmm. a polite way of saying. Yeah, martyred. Choked, strangled, and burned. There you go. <laughs> that makes more sense. Yeah. That's all I got for you, man. All right. We ready to get out of here? Let's do it. All right. Let's do it. The Theonauts are part of the Great Commission Transmission Network, using new media and social networking to go into all the world. 
and proclaim the good news to everyone. To find out more, go to gctnetwork.com. <sighs> Subscribe to the newsletter and stay it's up tasty. to date with all our shows, including Finding Christ in Cinema and, and the Secret Fire, Fire Podcast. Visit our web. Site at theonotspodcast.com for show notes and outlines. Listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or your favorite podcast catcher. Be sure to rate us because that helps us reach a larger audience. There are several ways you can contact us. And several. And leave us Facebook. Many. Send us email to theonots at gctnetwork.com. Call us on our voicemail line at 972-885-7270. Tweet to us on Twitter using at Theonautical. Like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Theonauts. If you like us and want even more Theonauts, drop us a buck or two at patreon.com slash Theonauts. Your patronage helps us in our expenses like hosting fees and equipment costs. And don't forget to tune in again and explore the vast reaches of God's Word with us. All right, Jeremiah, thanks for being here, brother. Thank you, David. God bless. This has been the Theonauts Podcast. Call us with your questions or comments at 972-885-7270. That's 972-885-7270. We'd love to hear from you. The Theonauts. Episode 148. The one where we... Did you get my... Of course I did. <laughs> this sucks. I'm in hell. Oh my gosh. <laughs>